The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's always a pleasure to be here with you in the pulpit, to be able to walk with you God, through God's Word. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask, if you will, turn over to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. When you survey the current evangelical landscape or the theological landscape today, you will find that there is an absence of God. There really is. When you begin to look at churches or denominations, you, you realize that God is just, it's like he's silent. And if it's silent or it's, if you do see God on their websites or on their, listen to their videos or listen or watch their article or read their articles, you will see him mentioned, but it, what has happened is God has been repackaged or reformatted in a way that is easy to comprehend and has basically been put in onto human terms so that we can easily manage God. Instead of looking at what Scripture shows us and says that God is a holy God, that he is perfect, that he is just, the God who spoke the world into existence, who is the author and the initiator of our eternal salvation. You don't see that anymore. And I'm not here to call in any churches or denominations, but if you're walking with Christ, it doesn't take you long to figure that out this day and age. It's like when your grandparents or your parents used to say, you know, they don't make them like that anymore, or, you know, it's just, uh, that's back in the old days. Well, Sometimes I don't even know if the, if the old days or how they used to make it more are right. But what we do need in this world today is a recovery of the God of the Bible. That's what we need more than anything. We need more than anything in the church and in the Christian life. We need more of God. We need a God-centered worldview. We need God-for-God God churches. We need people to have a consuming passion to live for the glory of God. And by God's grace, that's what we are doing here at Capital Community, raising up disciples who are awakened to a holy God. Whether you realize it or not, you're like the Comanche nation. People fear you because of the DNA that is infused in your bones and in your spirit because what Grant does week in and week out what all of our ministries are doing is trying to exalt the holy and just God of the Bible. That's what we're trying to do here by the grace of God. It's people like you who have a true desire in their heart to want to honor God in every single aspect of their life. This morning, we are going to walk through one of the more famous passages in Scripture. I say that it's more famous because in Exodus chapter 14, it is the story of when the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea. It's famous because, as you know, just in common culture, 
there are movies, there's plays, there's songs that have described or, or tried to portray you know, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. And this morning, no, we're not going to pull down. And I, like, you know, I, I remember one time I went to camp and they actually showed the Ten Commandments with Charles and Heston. Like that was a biblically accurate account. Um, as much as I look like Charleston Heston, maybe, uh, nonetheless, we are not going to do that. What we are going to do is open up God's Word together. And my prayer this morning is simple. My prayer for you is to see the God of the Bible. My prayer, since I've had the opportunity to come into this pulpit, this for you this week is for you to have your heart stirred deeply, like a fire shut up in my bones, like Jeremiah says of a holy and just God, the power for God, who spoke the world into existence. That's what I want you to have this morning, is for you to have an understanding of who God is, a deeper understanding of who God is. This morning, what we are going to look at in Exodus chapter 14 is we are going to see the attributes of God, the holiness of God, throughout this miraculous account of Israel crossing through the sea and being saved. It's a wonderful story. And it all is it's consumed with God. All of chapter 14, all it shows us over and over and over again is God. God does this. God moves. God commands. It's all about God. And in fact, the entire book of Exodus is all about the glory of God. And that's my prayer for you this morning, is that we will see this holy God. And let me do this. Let me set up the stage for us before we start walking through the text together, and let me give you a couple of key facts for you that will help you understand Exodus chapter 14. And yes, I've heard the groaning of my people, you do not have notes this morning, and you will be okay, because yes, Grant gives you manna, I'm going to give you steak, and some of you, some of you in here have been, hey, where are the notes, where are the notes? You're going to have to take out a paper and pen, and you're going to have to handwrite stuff, which I was telling the ushers a second ago. It's like your high school teacher. If you're writing, that means you're staying awake, and that'll do you and me a good service. But let me set up the background, and you can take notes uh, this morning, and it will help you to be able to do that. Let me set up where we are. First of all, when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, we can find in verses 13 and 14 that Israel is going to be enslaved for over 400 years. But in that covenant with Abraham, what we find is that God also tells them that he's going to deliver Israel from this captivity and he is going to crush who is enslaving them. They're, they're taskmasters. When we then move on further into Genesis, into 47 through 50, what we find is Israel moves from the promised land to Egypt due to famine in the land. If you recall those chapters, you probably know of Joseph and the like. And how remember, he was the prime minister of Egypt and, and brought the people there to save them from the famine. But it is after the death of Joseph, a new pharaoh comes into town, and there starts the 400-year journey of their enslavement. Fast forward to here we are in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 3, we meet a man who is a former member of Pharaoh's court, Moses, and Moses in Exodus chapter 3 has been commissioned to be the deliverer of Israel. And we see there from Moses' commission all the way to Exodus chapter 12, we see God's promise fulfilled. 
we see Israel starting their journey to the promised land. If you have your Bibles open, look with me in chapter 13, just a few verses ahead of 14, and look with me starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Look down with me, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and at night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. And that's where we see God starting their journey. And what we see in these, first, uh, these closing verses in chapter 13 is God takes Israel south, not north. North would have been the shortest route for Israel. But remember what he says back in 17. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The second thing we need to see here, and this is an important fact, look with me in verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire. Catch this in verse 22. The pillar of fire by night, or in the cloud by day, did not depart before the people. The Lord is with them. The Lord is with them. The presence of God is leading Israel. And what we need to understand by this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire is that this is a visible manifestation of the presence of God. This is a theophany. And that's what the people are witnessing. This is not a cloud that we see in the skies today or just a random puff of fire. No, this is God being with his people. And they are able to lay his eyes on him in this fashion, and he is leading protecting and bringing them to their salvation. But that's the key you need to see before we go up to the coastline of the Red Sea, that God is with his people. Now, if you have your pen ready, let's jump into chapter 14 together and let's look at this miraculous account. Our first point that we need to see this morning is the glory of the Lord must be known. The glory of the Lord must be known be known. Look with me in the first four verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back in a camp in front, in front of Phi-Hareroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and you will encamp facing it by the sea. Look with me in verse four. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Let me give you a little more detail on the route they're going. See, they're going south, and then they go up to the coastline. They go north up towards the Red Sea. When you look it out on a map, the plan does not make sense, because if they go north, the promised land is only about a two-week journey, even though you're looking at roughly a million people traveling. This isn't just a small camp of people. It's a lot of people heading to the promised land. But what you see there is that God takes them on a route that's not the easiest for them, but what is best for Israel. What we see already by God is that he is seeing the heart. He's not seeing the plan or the route. 
He's not seeing the easiest way or that it's going to be a nice climate as they journey to the promise. So no, he is more concerned about the heart. Here's the second thing we need to see here. Number two, there's also another party that God is talking about. Who is it? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 15. Remember in God's covenant with Abraham, he said, I'm going to crush the enemy that has enslaved you. And there we are back to introduce to the wonderful guy named Pharaoh, who every time I picture him, I think he's bald with that rat tail, like in the movie. I can't get that out of my mind. You know what I'm talking about? Is it, not, forget his name in the movie. I keep saying um, it doesn't matter. But anyway, but he's got the rat tail, and he is heading. And what we need to see here is Pharaoh is not going to be naive to what Israel is doing because this territory they, that they are in, think about it like they are in the back, the, the back end of your backyard, the very end of your property. That's what they are encamping. So get that in your mind. But there we need to understand that God is going to crush his enemy. And all of this is a ruse. All of this is a ruse. God is going to crush Pharaoh and his, and his Egyptian army. But why is he doing this? There's two things we need to see. Number one, he's going to fulfill his promise. But number two, like we see here, for the Pharaoh to know that I am the Lord and I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That's what he is consumed about. And that is what we have to see, that the glory of the Lord has to be proclaimed. It has to be displayed. And it must be known around Egypt and the world. We, it's not the first time we see this. Of course, we see it in Genesis 15. But if you turn just a few pages in your Bible to Exodus chapter 9, you will find in verse 16 that Moses says this to Pharaoh when he is telling about the seventh plague. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, you Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Right there in front of him, Moses tells him, you are going to be the tool that I'm going to use for my name to be proclaimed. Paul, the Apostle Paul, quotes this in Romans 9.17 to show that God is sovereign over all evil and that God will use whoever, including Pharaoh, for his glory and his saving power to be made known. That's what we see there in Romans 9 about the doctrine of election. Now, it's tempting for us to think, is God some sort of tyrant or making a joke out of Pharaoh. No, that's not the case at all. The glory of the Lord has to be seen in Israel, Egypt, and the surrounding area because this is going to continue. This is going to continue the way of the Lord, i.e., salvation, to be known all over the world. Think about it like the Great Commission going on. That's exactly what is taking place here. Pharaoh and his army will be an outlet of God's saving work. It's like, for example, when you hear a sad story, you know, or an amazing story, or an astonishing story. You know, it always makes you pause and reflect. But most of the time, when you hear something tragic, there's always a response. Most of the time, an internal response when you hear something like that. And the response here that we see is that salvation is going to be known all over the world. That's the desire of God. That's the attribute of God, a characteristic of God that we see that he is a redeemer. And even though the means may not make sense to us in our human minds, it does to God, and that's the most important thing we need to see. That's what we need to see here. Because here's the application, folks. 
as a Christian, we need to understand that the glory of God is always at stake. It is always at stake because if you are a Christian, you need to know by God's command that whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God. We represent a people who have been redeemed. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ. The question to ask yourself is, are you conscious of this truth? Do you realize that people are watching you, especially when you claim to be a Christian? Whether you realize it or not, when you go out into the world and you say that you even go to capital, people are going to associate that with the church and the church, most importantly, with God himself. You are a representative of God, whether you realize it or not. And number two, you need to understand that the glory of God is always his top priority. It's always his top priority. Why? Because when, it, his, when his glory is infinitely displayed and his majesty is seen, that's when we see lives changed. That's when we see men and women come to Christ. And that's when you see this awestruck reality and as a Christian, and you realize deep within the recesses of your heart how serious it is to glorify him and what you have been redeemed from. And here's the other thing we need to see. Number three, we also need to understand that though the path of life may not make sense to us, we have to trust God. If you and I were field captains for Moses, I would tell you to go north. It's easier. It's much easier. A shorter time on the feet. It's going to be a, probably a better climate, like I said, for us. But no, that's not where God does. He takes them on a path for his glory. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to realize that even though when God faces us with suffering, hardship, or whatever comes our way, we must trust in his sovereignty and know that he's working everything for our good and his glory. Now, I know that's not easy to think about and understand a lot of times, because especially when you're in the moment, the last thing in the world you want to hear is this is for the glory of God. But the reality is that is what is at stake, and that's what's most important to the Lord. Because when the glory of God is then seen, even in the midst of suffering, it's amazing what takes place, the ripple effect takes place in other people's lives when they see that you are trusting in God, even though the path doesn't make sense. Which leads us to our second point. Since the glory of God must be known, then we obviously need to see that our response is to be silent before God, that He alone saves. Be silent before God. He alone saves. If the glory has got to be known, then his, and His glory is always going to show, what His glory is going to reveal to us is that He is the Savior. He is the author and the initiator of our salvation and saves people from sin and death. Let's set the scene as we look at verses 5 through 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have, have let Israel go from serving us so that he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. Now, look with me in chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near... 
the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, they saw the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out before the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us, taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Is, this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Let me just stop there. So Pharaoh continues his path of sin. He pursues after Israel. He grabs his world-renowned army, and there he goes. And in verse 9, Pharaoh and the boys, they roll up to Israel, and there they are equipped to fight. And Pharaoh thinks he has them right in the palm of his hand. And In the world's eyes, it's ripe for the picking for Egypt. But look what happens in verse 10. Israel feared greatly. They cried out to Moses. Even though Israel had just witnessed a few weeks ago the ten plagues and are on the path to the promised land, i.e., they just left Egypt and are no longer slaves, they forgot God. They were scared. They're crying out to Moses. I was reading this week an interesting uh, medical journal, and yes, I was reading a medical journal. Shows you how smart I am. And, um, and I was reading in this medical journal that when we are in a stressful situation, our brain interprets whatever the situation we may be in, and this fight-or-flight response kicks in. It's a survival mechanism. And as I was reading, it's amazing what happens when the body kicks in. The chemical functions and bodily functions all come into a head, and there we either fight or we flight. It's amazing how God has inter he just weaved our body to be able to, to do that. It's amazing when you realize that our bodies can do. But here's the problem. Israel didn't want to fight. They wanted to flight. They wanted to get out of there. They wanted to flee. They not only wanted to get out of the coastline of the Red Sea, but most importantly, again, think about the heart here. They fled God. That's who they are really complaining against. Yes, they're yelling at Moses, but remember, Moses is their mediator. And, he is rep- he, and he's standing between God and them. And so their complaint is really a complaint to God. So think about it. Lord, you could have kept us in Egypt. We could have served the Egyptians and died there instead of facing the calamity that is right before our eyes. That's what they are saying before God. Not, I trust in you. And not worshiping him. And realizing once again that his glory must be known. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he says, These things happened as examples. The examples that Paul is talking about are warnings. Warnings not to follow Israel's disobedience. But the reality is also this. Fleeing is very much a temptation that Christians face today. As we walk with Christ... And when an anxious situation comes our way, what's our response? What about when suffering takes place? When the phone call happens and everything in your life turns upside down? When you hear about a family member suffering, going through a financial or health problem? What's your response? Do you flee? What about as a Christian when Satan begins to throw his fiery darts at you and you begin to doubt the Lord 
and his providence and his grace. It's just like when Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13. Turn in your Bibles over to Matthew 13. And he teaches there the parable of the sower. Look with me starting in verse 18 as he explains the parable of the sower. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Again, key word there, heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, think about Israel there for a second, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. For at what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and it understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. We have to be watchful of what comes our way. And when Satan begins to throw his darts or suffering comes or even the desire and the riches of the world, when they begin to dangle in front of our eyes and we hear that temptation from the garden come again, just take and eat. We have to be watchful because here's our response. Here's the command from God when that happens. Look with me in verses 13 through 14. Some of my favorite verses in Scripture. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. What a response. What a response. Look at the power of God. God commands his people to do the exact opposite of what human intuition or worldly wisdom would tell us to do. If we're really honest, I think we'd be getting out of there, fleeing as fast as we can. But that's not what God says. Fear not, stand firm, and watch the salvation of God unfold right before your eyes. I was recently watching a, a documentary on um, Dwight Eisenhower, or not, not a documentary, but a video of Dwight Eisenhower, and he was being interviewed by Walter Cronkite, and he was, it was 20 years after D-Day, and he was, they were going back and forth of explaining the infamous day that changed the course of World War II, and the video was also corresponding with Dwight Eisenhower's grandson, David Eisenhower, and he was talking about how his grandfather would every now and then respond or talk about D-Day. But what was interesting as I was watching it, and it came to mind when I thought about going against worldly wisdom, you know, D-Day was delayed because of weather. I don't know if you knew that, but now I'm telling you that because I'm smart. Remember that. And, but D-Day was delayed because of weather. But what, you, what I read, or excuse me, listened to in the documentary is that Dwight got an, a little piece of intel that there was going to be an 18-hour break in the weather. And even though all of his commanders and a lot of other people are telling him, continue to wait, continue to wait, continue to wait, let's let the weather get better, no, he doesn't. And June 6th will, uh, will be a day that will forever live in our history books for D-Day. Dwight had to make a decision. 
had to trust, and he initiated D-Day. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a lot of times what happens when we are faced and we think that we are in a rock and a hard place. We have to be silent and fear not and stand firm before the Lord. And what a humbling rebuke from Moses. When you look at verses 13 to 14, one commentator described the Hebrew language as this. It is a negative imperative, which is the strongest possible form of expressing negation in the Hebrew language. It's very much the rebuke of a father to a son when a kid is scared and he's looking at him with confidence but also with a stark warning right behind it not to be afraid. It's very much like I remember when I was a boy, we could burn yard debris from um, in our backyard. That's foreign to you people in Raleigh, but you could burn anything um, where I grew up, including trash. And so, but anyway, we won't get there. Don't email me. Um, and so, but I remember one time when I was little, Parents were burning yard debris, and my dad just told me, hold the line, watch the fire, and just stay there and just watch it. But I remember, I thought the fire was getting out of control, so I ran inside to tell my mom. My mom comes outside, and I see my dad outside doing nothing, and what I didn't realize what was taking place is was my dad was in control of the situation the entire time. Unbeknownst to me, he was in the backyard. Though he was pruning and doing stuff, he was there the whole time. I left my position. I didn't stand firm. I didn't obey what my dad told me to do. I fled and went and told mom, which you know made my dad happy. But here's the thing we need to understand. Being silent is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're a kid or an adult. Being silent is one of the hardest things to do. But the heart of Moses to tell Israel to be silent is for them to see that their silence is showing that they are not in control. Not one second are they in control over anything, and especially being saved. The point here that we can see in, from verses 5 through 14 is that God has taken responsibility over the matter. God has taken responsibility over the matter. And this command to fear not and to stand firm and watch this salvation unfold before your eyes, what it shows us is that salvation has nothing to do with human effort. From beginning to end, it is all about God. All about God. Only God can save. And right here, it is a picture of the gospel. God is the only one who can open up the path. And it's the same for us today. When we believe in the gospel, only the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can he transform our hearts to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Here's the other point of application you need to see. This idea, or this command, excuse me, to stand firm is mentioned over 13 times in Scripture. It's not the first time we see it here. Just to call out a few if you'd like to write them down, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Standing firm and being silent is hard to do because it's very easy for us to want to flee and to cope with our anxiety and addiction or cope with our fears with some sort of man-made object or some sort of man-made idea that is formed in our mind so that we think that we are in control over the situation, but in fact we are not. 
Standing firm is trusting in the Lord. It's not necessarily a bodily act. It's a knowledge that goes from here to here to know that the Lord is sovereign and that no matter, even though it doesn't make sense to us, we can stand on the truth that he is sovereign and he is good and he is working everything out for our good and his glory. Let me teach you a couple of ways, and you've heard them before here, but it always beg, comes by way of reminder. Ways to stand firm and to be able to equip you to stand firm is always going to be by you reading and obeying the word of God, by being men and women of prayer, attending corporate worship. This is what's going to transform your heart. It's going to help you put on the whole armor of God and help you to stand and to be quiet and stand in the midst of the gap when the world seems to be crushing down all around you. It's amazing when you think about the reality of what God is commanding his people to do in the face of an army right on their back door. But yet, God is in control of the whole situation. Let's look, look at our third and final point as we close out our journey. This is going to be in verses 15 through 31. And our third point is the fear of the Lord is what God desires for man. The fear of the Lord is what God desires for man. So if the Lord wants his glory to be made known, and as his glory is going to be displayed, and when it is displayed, we see salvation, that he alone saves, our, respo our response when we see this should always to be to fear him. Let's break down the climatic ending to the crossing of the Red Sea. Look with me in verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Notice that again. And all of his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So let's break this down. In verses 15 through 18, God tells Moses to tell the people to go forward. Go right into the sea. What a crazy idea. To go right into the heart of the sea. A million people, hey, take a swim real quick. That's the worldly wisdom. That's what you see on the cover of the box. But that's not what we see in the details of it. What we see is God is going to use Moses to split the sea in half. I was reading a couple of articles from geologists and meteorologists um, over the weekend of how they're trying to explain the, the parting of the Red Sea. I even found a video on the History Channel, and it was fascinating to watch these guys try to explain this phenomenon. It really was. And just like people trying to explain the, you know, the Big Bang Theory, they were chasing themselves around and around. They couldn't answer themselves. It was quite comical because they were saying, well, back you know, 400 years ago, there was random winds that would take place. And, and then when someone would ask them, would well, you have record of those winds? Well, no, not really. They couldn't explain this phenomenon because God is behind it all. God spoke creation into existence, and he has the power to do with, to, to do with whatever he pleased with it. And just like we saw God incarnate in Jesus and the wind tossed sea in Matthew, Matthew 8 and Mark 4, and he told it to be quiet and be still. And remember what the disciples' response was? 
They were amazed that even the winds and the seas obey him. It was his authority, it was his authority that they saw. And again, there in verse 18, we see God going to get glory over Pharaoh. His plan has not changed. This is not like a football game that maybe some of you watched yesterday where you're sitting on the edge of your seat wondering if your, tour, your team excuse me, is going to win or you lose or you're hoping that the team doesn't make uh, another touchdown. You're begging for it. No, this is not wondering what God's going to do here. Once again, he is repeating. And remember, repetition is always good for the soul. He repeats that he's going to get glory over Pharaoh. What a difference we see here between a ball game and the word of the Lord because what we see here is that this is the, the, the decretive will of God. That is, God brings whatever he pleases by his eternal decree. Nothing is going to stop this plan for his people to fear him. Nothing's going to stop this plan. Now, let's journey on. Look with me in verses 19 through 25. Then the angel of God who is going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. And all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And here we are. Here are the Egyptians. Look what they do. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them. Verse 23. In the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The presence of God moves from before him to behind to protect him. He is the gap between the army and their path to the other side of the sea. And a bright light is now there for Israel to be able to move forward. And this light show, by the way, would beat any July 4th fireworks show. And then we see there in verse 22 a miracle. A miracle, ladies and gentlemen. Israel goes right through the heart of the sea on dry land. On dry land. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? Again, going back to my article that I read about the geologist, they said that one guy said, well, I don't know if it was really dry ground. It was more or less just the marshy part of the Red Sea. I don't know about you. I grew up on the coast, but a marsh is wet. Just FYI, if you've never been to the coast before, but it's wet. But when I read the Bible, and I hope you saw it too, they walk through dry ground, and the walls beside them is water. They're not in the water, like swimming per se, but they're going through the water. And there again we see God's plan into action, Egypt going right down, and there we see God confusing them, bringing panic. The wheels get bogged down, and there they collide. And at that moment, they know that they are defeated. Why? Because they say so. The Lord fights for them. The Lord fights for them. And ladies and gentlemen, let's see this humble ending. 
Look with me in verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. I don't know about you, but every time I read 26, it's a lot to read there. Because people, Egypt is dying. But here's what we need to understand they are the enemy, they are sin. And God will not have this in his sight. And verse 26, yes, it's, it is a lot to intake. But here we see, most importantly, that the glory of the Lord is going to be known. His salvation is being seen, even in verse 26, by collapsing the water over top of them. And here we see, here we see the fear of the Lord beginning to move in the hearts of the people. There they are. So Moses stretched out his hand, verse 27, over the heart of the sea, returned to his normal course, and the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Verse 29, And the people of Israel walked on dry ground to the sea, and the waters being on a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Egypt is crushed, and Israel is saved. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 51 verse 10, describes this of Egypt being crushed and salvation coming from the hand of God. Isaiah 51 verse 10 was it not you, Yahweh, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Yes, it was. God delivered Israel from their enemy. And what a picture of God saving people from, his, from sin. God provided the plan of salvation, and he defeats Pharaoh. Even Moses, his hand gestures and the raising of his staff is mentioned four times. Why is it? Because the staff or Moses don't have any power. It is to show the creator at work. And there it is. Look with me again in verse 31. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. There's the goal. The people feared the Lord. Philip Ryken says it best. Listen to this quote. God was fulfilling his grand purpose of saving his people for his glory. For that to happen, his people had to trust in him and worship him. But notice the order. God did not wait for his people to trust in him before he would save them. If he waited for that to happen, they never would have been saved. Instead, God took the initiative. First, the people saw their salvation just as Moses had promised in 1413. Then they feared and believed. And this is the pattern and the purpose of salvation. First, God delivers us from danger, saving us. We cannot save ourselves. Then we respond in faith, trusting God and worshiping Him. That's what we see here. The fear of the Lord oftentimes has a negative connotation because as soon as you hear fear, you think of being scared. But whenever you think of the fear of the Lord, think of honor. Think of reverent fear, filial fear. 
that you have before the Lord. A great way of understanding the fear of the Lord is going to come by Psalm 130, verse 4. Write that down so you can go back and read it. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Notice the order. Forgiveness so that you may be feared. I know you've been in this position before, especially if you're a believer. When you realize that you have been forgiven for a lot, makes you a very grateful person, doesn't it? Humble person, doesn't it? Whenever I think about when I came to faith in college, and humbles me to the core, because when I realize what God has saved me from, from sin and death, it's very much a Romans 2-4, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And that's the whole package, for people to fear and to know God. One of my favorite passages in Scripture for us to understand and what the goal of God doing in the heart of the people for them to fear Him. But for us to understand it in another light comes by way of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Write that down if you have a pen with you. But listen to the word of the Lord. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. The Lord is at the center of our fear. And what Isaiah is saying here is the Lord is the ultimate authority and we are to submit everything to him. Everything to him. And so there we are. Israel's on the other side. They've crossed the Red Sea. And what we have seen in Exodus chapter 14 is God showing his power, his mercy, his judgment, and his glory. There is no doubt in the account that we see here. It is all of God. And my prayer for you this morning is that your view of God just got a whole lot bigger. And your worldview is going to throw off the temptations of wanting to follow the worldly wisdom. And I pray that you're going to have a shaped and razor-sharp God-centered worldview. It's no accident, ladies and gentlemen, that the New Testament describes Jesus' work on the cross as the exodus. If you know, in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, when Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, he says about his departure. And when you look in the Greek there, the Greek word is where we get exodus from. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, talks about, makes the connection of the people walking through the Red Sea. He makes it a connection to baptism. We see that Jesus is the new and better Moses in Hebrews 3.3. And even Moses said it in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 13. There's going to be one who's coming who's greater than I. Him you shall obey. He's talking about Jesus. It's all right here in Exodus. And this whole account helps us to see the God of the Bible. The God who sent forth his son Jesus to save us from our sin, Egypt. To deliver us from our to deliver us from our bondage. And not through our own work. But he sent his son, Jesus, to save us from our sin, provided the way of salvation. This is our 
God. This is our God. In closing, one of my favorite hymns ever, and we sang it a couple of weeks ago uh, when, I was, when I was leading music, is Guide Me, O Thy Great Jehovah. I love, love this, love that hymn. But in the third stanza, it says this, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever sing to you. I will ever sing to you. To him alone be the glory. For his grace and his mercy, his sovereignty, and praise God that he sent his son Jesus to provide the way of salvation for us. Let's pray. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you, Lord, how this story of Israel crossing through the Red Sea is a story of salvation. God, thank you for saving us from our sin. I can't say it enough. And Lord, showing us how big you are and how small we are. Father, my prayer for capital is that we will continue to have a heart that is awakened to a holy God and that even now you will see no matter what comes our way, no matter what you put in our path, we will stand firm and fear not and trust in the Lord. Father, we love you, and I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.